pointers and helpful ideas of how to have these better relationships. We rely on ourselves, almost as if there's a greater person buried within us. There's, there's a greater husband, a greater mother, and if I can just find the right practical advice, I can unlock that greater person within me. But here's the biblical message. There is not a greater person within us. There's not this great husband, this great mother buried deep down inside. The biblical message is this. Deep down inside at the core of our beings is actually a selfish person that needs to be restrained. Or if we were going to use even more biblical language, we need to put that person to death. You see, Scripture is pretty, pretty clear from beginning to end. The theme is this. We don't unlock greatness from within ourselves. We are made greater by the power of someone greater than ourselves. And it's when we rely on him, that's when we find the richness and the greatness that we've been talking about for the last five weeks in this series called Greater. And today we're concluding that series by talking about this pursuit for greater relationships. And what does that look like? Throughout this whole series, we've been saying God has a great life that he's offering us. Now, it's not a life where your wildest fantasies necessarily come true, but it is a life where there is real peace and there's real contentment and real satisfaction and real hope and real promise and real security. That is a great life that he truly offers every one of us. But it's not found by pursuing lesser things. It's found when we pursue someone greater than ourselves, Christ. So today we're talking about greater relationships. How do we find these, these rich relationships we're looking for? To help us yet again, we're looking at the book of Colossians, as we've done in every message through this series. So if you have your Bibles, pop those things up to Colossians chapter 3. If you don't have your Bible with you, don't sweat it. We put the passages on the screens to the side. But my personal recommendation, get this little thing out, download the FCC Monmouth app on your mobile device. Click the Sunday button on the navigation bar. It's in the bottom right-hand corner. It's got sermon notes with the passages already pulled up, ready for to use and to roll with. So we're going to start this morning off with a, a proposition that I think a lot of us would agree with, but we just struggle to put into practice. It's a really simple idea. It goes like this. The key to growing any relationship is pursuit. The key to growing any relationship is pursuit. And our relationship with Christ is not an exception to this rule. So what do we mean when we talk about pursuit? Well, pursuit is this idea that implies a forward motion. It implies that there is a, a, a development that's happening. We're chasing after something. And we can see this in any relationship that the pursuit is necessary. I'll use my marriage as an example. And this is probably true of your marriages as well. In the early days of my relationship with my wife, when we first started dating, it was all about pursuit. I was pursuing her. I was pursuing her affections. I was pursuing her hand in marriage. And in that pursuit, there were a lot of, well, there weren't a lot, but there were several grand gestures that tended to be how I, I and maybe you displayed your affection in those early days. And one of those grand gestures was our first Valentine's Day. It was a big one. I went big. I, we went to my favorite restaurant, not my, our, our, which turned out to be mine. We went to our favorite restaurant, this Thai place in Joplin. And then we went to, there's this little candy house like outside of town that we love to go to. We went out there and then we went to our favorite park and we took a long walk and, and I had stationed people at every location to present her with flowers when she wasn't expecting it or I would hide them in like the nook of a tree and like voila and there's more flowers. It was this really grand orchestrated thing and to be honest with you, I probably went too big because uh, I've never been able to match that Valentine's Day since then and I'm reminded of that every Valentine's Day after that. But it's this grand gesture. Another grand gesture was my, my marriage proposal, and I'll save that story because 
I don't have a lot of great stories, and I hope to preach for a long time, so I'm going to keep that one in my back pocket. But there are these grand gestures, and it all culminated in this ceremony, this really special day where I had pursued my wife, and now I, I had seized her, I guess. I had, I had achieved her. I had found her. I had gotten her hand. She said, I do. She was locked in and stuck with me. We did it. I met my goal. But that isn't where the pursuit ended. If it stopped on the wedding day, instead of growing in a, a healthy and rich marriage, what we would have ended up growing was a very stale and dull marriage. You see, that wedding day, that celebration where we said, I do, that was not the finish line. That was the starting line. And everything leading up to that, that was just preliminaries and qualifiers. Now the relationship was really off to the races. And pursuit was necessary to continue that growth. And I'll say this, our pursuit of each other in this phase of our relationship looks very different than it did in the early days. While we were dating, there's those butterflies and the excitement and the grand gestures. And we got a few grand gestures now, but, but you can't do that every day. I don't have the money for that. So <laughs> that's a joke, okay? It's okay. <laughs> in this stage of our relationship, our devotion to one another, our pursuit, it looks like our devotion that we share every day. It looks like how we pray with and for each other. It looks like how we serve each other. It looks like how we share important parts of our lives with each other, how we listen to each other. It's, it's that relationship. It's that day-in, day-out devotion. That's what our pursuit looks like now. And the same may be true for you and your relationship. You know, maybe today it's that day-in, day-out pursuit of one another that keeps things fresh and rich. Every relationship requires pursuit if it wants to grow. And our relationship with Christ actually has a lot of parallels. You think back to those early days when you first started to develop in belief and faith was just starting to come alive. You probably had those butterflies and you had some excitement because it was new and it was rich. And it all culminated in this really grand gesture, this really special ceremony where we said, I do, to our Savior. We were baptized. We went under that water. It old us died. We came up out of that water and by faith we were raised to new life. It was a significant day. But here's the thing, that ceremony, that special day, that was the starting line, not the finish line. Everything leading up to that, that was preliminaries and qualifiers. The day we said, I do to Christ, the day we said, I believe and trust in you, here's my life, that's when faith really got started. And if we hope to grow a rich, meaningful, great relationship with him, it will require pursuit, not the kind of grand gesture sprinkled throughout our lives, but the day in, day out devotion of saying, I am yours, you are mine, I will follow you wherever you lead. It's devotion, it's pursuit. Pursuit is necessary for the development, for the growth of any relationship, including our relationship with Christ. In Colossians chapter 3, it helps us understand what that development and what that pursuit looks like in the context of our lives. So let's take a look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. It goes like this. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. So there's a lot in here. We said this last week. Colossians is a really dense book. We don't have the time to unpack every phrase and every idea in these, and this, this passage is not excluded from that. We don't have time to unpack everything, but there's something I want to draw attention to you here. It says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Since then. There's something that happened. Because you were raised with Christ, there's, there's a, there's a follow-through or follow-up action that's required. There's something that happened to us. We were changed. 
And this change, we talked about it last week too. If you weren't here, go read Colossians chapter 2. Listen to the podcast from last week. It'll be worth your time. But here's the summary. We were changed in our faith to Christ. We were baptized under the water. The old us died just as Jesus died and was buried in a tomb. We were buried in a watery grave. And when we were raised back to life, when we came up out of that water by our faith, we became a new person. We were made alive just as Christ was raised back to life. We were changed. And that change requires follow-up in our lives. And he says here, he even hints on it, don't set your mind on earthly things. Don't set your heart on earthly things. Set your heart and your mind on things above. And it gets a little specific as we keep reading. We look at verse 5. And as we read this passage, it's a little long, I want you to keep an ear out for the change language, this idea of change and transformation inherent in these words. Here it goes, chapter, five, or chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. That being sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil, desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. And don't lie to each other, since you've taken off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and bear with each other. Forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Did you hear all the different instances of change and this idea of change inherent in these words? It says, take off the old self, put on the new self. Take off the old ways, these ways of, of sexual immorality and purity, lust and greed and anger and malice and slander and rage and deceit. Take those off and put on the new self. The self with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and honesty. There's a change, a transformation that is to take place within us since we've been raised with Christ, since we've said yes, since we said I do and we started the race, there is transformation, this perpetual pursuit necessary. And there's this idea in verse 10, I really want to draw attention to this. In verse 10, it says, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge of the image of its creator. That phrase, is being renewed, it's a really special phrase. Now, if you've been with us any amount of time, I, you may have noticed, I try to be very transparent. I try to peel back the layers of who is Jordan Schultz and show you the truth of just how nerdy and geeky I really can be about so many things in life. And today, I'm going to show you yet another one of those things, grammar. I'm a big grammar nerd. I love grammar and the way that sentences and phrases are put together. And in the context of the Bible, that's really important because it unlocks a lot of meaning and significance. And this phrase is a great example, is being renewed. That is a present, passive participle. Let's break down what that means. Some of you who, who hated English class, you're like, no, I thought I was done with this. Present, passive participle. It's passive. What that means is that this is not something we do. This renewal, this transformation, it's not us doing it. We don't transform ourselves. We don't renew ourselves. It's passive. This is something done to us. There is a power that impresses itself upon us that changes us and renews us and transforms us. It's the power of Christ. 
is the power of his Holy Spirit. Our responsibility is not to unlock the greater person deep within ourselves, remember, because that person doesn't exist. Our responsibility is to pursue someone greater than ourselves, and he's the one who changes and renews and transforms. So it's passive. It's also a present participle, meaning that this, this transformation, this renewal, it's happening right now in the present, but it's not done. It's an ongoing, continuing action. And it stretches on indefinitely into the future. What that means is that this, this transformation, this renewal is not a one and done thing. I was baptized, boom, I'm a new person. You are a new person, but now you have to grow into that new person, that new life you've been given. This is a perpetual thing, a continual thing. This is a pursuit, as we might say, as we've been saying this morning. So we put all this together, and here's what it's basically saying. Our job is simply to chase after Christ for the rest of our lives. Not to say, I did it, I found Jesus, now I'm different. Our job is to continually pursue him. And as we pursue him, he affects his power and grace upon our lives in an incredible way that transforms us from the inside out and puts that old self to death and takes off those ways of impurity and immorality and greed and anger and rage and malice and slander. And he changes our hearts and our minds to show compassion and kindness and gentleness and humility and grace. It's the work of Jesus in our lives. We just seek after him. Now, that's a lot of theology in a very short amount of time. So let's take a step back. Let's digest this a little bit with an illustration brought to you yet again through my contentious relationship with exercise. I hate it today. I used to like it. I used to love exercise. And believe it or not, I used to like have a workout plan, and I would lift weights, and I'd drink protein shakes that cost too much, and I would monitor what I ate, try to get good fats, because that's a thing, and try to leave out bad fats. Like, I was really into fitness and health. My downfall was that I tended to rely on myself, my own discipline, my own knowledge, which really was gleaned from Arnold Schwarzenegger movies and the internet, so recipe for success. I relied on myself. And because of that, when I dug down deep inside myself, instead of finding a muscle-bound Hulk ready to escape, what I found was a skinny guy who really liked Oreos. And this is what you get when you rely on yourself with weightlifting and exercise and fitness, okay? You wind up with this. My friend Josh is a very different story. You see, Josh, he was shorter than me, but about the same build. He also was very interested in getting fit and, and you know, getting toned and everything, but he was humble enough to say, I know nothing about exercise. And so he found a guy named Matt. Matt was a mentor, and Josh, he simply pursued Matt's instruction. Matt set the regimen, he set the circuit, he set the diet, he set the time. Matt was there to encourage and to discipline uh, uh, um, Josh as he was lifting, he was there to spot him. Like Josh, he just devoted himself to Matt's example and Matt's leading. And as a result, Josh started to see some gains and he started to get stronger. And eventually he even outgrew Matt's ability to lead him. But instead of relying on himself at that point, he found somebody else to follow and devote himself to. And he found a new mentor who coached him and who encouraged him and set the regiment and the cycle and the, the circuit. And, the, and he did that. And all Josh did was say, I'm going to do what you tell me to do. I'm just going to follow you and your lead, and we'll see what happens. And today, Josh's biceps are the size of my thighs. His body was transformed in a radical way because instead of relying on himself, he relied on the mentorship, on the leadership of someone else. That's what our passage is saying. Inside of us is not this greater person, this greater husband, this greater wife, this greater father, this greater mother waiting to escape. Inside of us is a person that needs to be radically transformed and renewed by Jesus. 
And when we follow him, that's exactly what he does. Now, you may be saying, this is great. This is awesome. What does this have to do with relationships? And the answer is absolutely everything. It has everything to do with greater relationships in our lives. You see, by growing in a relationship with Christ, that provides the transformation we need for greater relationships. It's following Jesus that gives us the transformation we need for these greater marriages and these greater relationships with our kids that we're seeking after. I mean, let's just, let's back up a little bit. Let's revisit that list of qualities of of the old self, of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, greed, uh, anger, rage, malice, slander, lying to one another, dishonesty. You know what all these things have in common? They will kill your relationships. This is a recipe for disaster. If you want to ruin your marriage, just pick any of the above. Lie to your spouse. Men, just lose your temper, yell at your wife, say things that you don't mean that you're going to regret later on. That'll do the trick. Or women, just slander your husbands. Criticize him openly in front of other people. Take him out at the knees. That'll do it too. If you want to ruin your relationship with your kids, just let that rage fly. Don't even try to hold it back. Yell, cuss at them, or because we're Christians and we don't cuss, just belittle them and make them feel like they'll never measure up. Does the same thing. These qualities are murder for our relationships. And there is no number of helpful tips and tricks and pointers and practical application points that's going to fix that. Those things are great. They have their place, but they're Band-Aids. What we're dealing with is cancer. And you can't cure cancer with Band-Aids. We don't need more Band-Aids. We need transformation. We need new hearts. Because all of these qualities that we've talked about, these are things that we have done. These are things that we have experienced. These are wounds that we have dealt. These are wounds that we have received. We know that the old self ruins relationships. We know tips and tricks and Band-Aids are not going to fix the wounds that we've suffered. What we need is transformation. What we need is renewal. We need compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. We need what only Jesus can offer. That's how we find greater, richer relationships. Not through pointers, but through Christ. And Colossians even seems to recognize this because if we were to look at how this book is put together, it's, if you have your Bibles with you, it's easier to see this, okay? But this whole section about transformation we talked about in chapter 3, there's just this paragraph. The very next section of Scripture, guess what it deals with? Relationships, our marriages, our family structures. It deals with the household. Now, the arrangement of the biblical text, not an accident, Okay? They didn't just pick random ideas and string them together. This is a flow of continuous thought, almost as if God is trying to say, you want a better relationship life? You want a better marriage? You want a better relationship with your kids? Here's how you do it. It's not anything else under the sun. It's Christ. This, then, this. And so here, let's look at what Colossians has to say. Chapter 3, verse 18. We're going to start talking about those relationships directly. It starts off with this. It says, wives, submit to your husbands, sorry, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, it's important we read those together because they belong together. This is marriage. This is the dance of marriage. And it is a dance. There's two partners. There's ebb and there's flow. There's give and there's take. But in every dance, there's a leader and there's a follower. Marriage isn't any different. And God has said in the scriptures, look, men, whether you want to or not, I've chosen you to lead. You're going to set the pace. And for that reason, he then speaks to ladies, says, women, 
Submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. You heard it in the video today, right? I don't know if you caught it, but he said that. Unfortunately, he did not apply that passage correctly. But that is oftentimes the idea that gets conjured when we hear this phrase. It's this idea of a domineering husband and this wife that's just supposed to roll over and do whatever he says. Ah! Yeah, you woke up with that one, didn't you? That's not the biblical message of submission. Submission does not equal subservience. Submission is not a statement about your value or your contribution or your place in this relationship. Submission, rather, is a gift. It is an act of devotion in which, ladies, you are trusting your husband with yourself so fully and so completely that you even trust him with your will. And that kind of gift requires from you an incredible amount of patience. Because, fellas, let's face it, we can be kind of thick in the head. We mess up. Ladies, that requires from you a tremendous amount of grace. Because we are not perfect and we will mess up. What it requires of you, ladies, is for you to look an awful lot like Jesus in the context of this relationship. Even he submitted himself. We read about it in one of the most, in my opinion, one of the most important and profound passages in the New Testament. It's Philippians chapter 2. Have the same attitude as Christ Jesus, who in being very likeness of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And what that means is that Jesus, Jesus the Son of God, was equal with God in glory and in splendor and in authority and in power. This was not a lesser ontology, if you want to get philosophical about it. Yet he chose to submit himself to the Father. He chose to say, I will follow your plan. I will even go to the cross. I will trust you with the most intimate parts of who I am. And because of that submission, he was not made weaker. He was not made lesser. He was made greater. Because he submitted to the Father. Because he followed the plan. Because he bore the cross. We read at the end of that passage in Philippians 2 that he was exalted to the highest place and given the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is great because he submitted. And ladies, in the context of your relationship, you are asked to put on the character of Christ and to show that compassion and that patience and that, that, that humility and bear with us in our imperfections as we attempt to lead as God called us. Now, men, you have a part to play in this because in this same passage, you are told to love your wives, and that has very little to do with flowers and chocolates, though they probably wouldn't mind if you did that. Instead, you are called to a sacrificial kind of love, a love that looks a lot like Jesus, a kind of love that gives of yourself so fully that you are willing to sacrifice deep and important parts of yourself, sacrificing your will, sacrificing your selfishness, sacrificing your dreams, sacrificing yourself. You are to give of yourself just as fully as she gives of herself in submission. That's the dance in the relationship here. You are called to look like Christ. And in the process, we are reminded, fellas, do not be harsh with that woman because she has trusted you with herself. 
Do not belittle that gift and that trust by being selfish or by being childish or by being petty or by being small. Don't you insult her by asserting your dominance or being domineering. Your job is to sacrifice in love and to cherish her just as her job is to support and honor you through submission. That's the dance of marriage. And it looks an awful lot like Jesus on the cross because those qualities that we read about earlier, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, all of that is necessary. You see, it's when we let Christ reign in our lives, when he changes us to look more like him, that's when we find deeper, richer marriages. That's when this dance is at its greatest, is when Christ is at greatest in us. So there's marriage. But this isn't just confined to marriage. There's something in here about family relationships too. Look at verse 20. It says, put to death. Oh, nope, that's the wrong one. There we go. Technology's great till it's not. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Teenagers and 20-somethings, listen up. There's something in here for you, okay? God doesn't want you to wait until 30 until you start experiencing this greater life, all right? He's not waiting until you enter adulthood as our culture defines it. You have the ability to find greater life right now, and it is found in the most unlikely of spots, obedience to your parents. And some of you listen to that, and you say, but my parents are idiots. They don't know anything about the way that the world really works. I figured it out. And you know, it's remarkable. Between the ages of 16 and 21, we have all the answers. We know exactly how things work out. We know exactly what we're supposed to do and where we're going, but I want to let you in on something, guys. There's this amazing phenomenon. It happens every year. And either when you graduate from high school or graduate from college, whichever the case for you means, whichever one's later, the day after that diploma hits your hands, you will be struck with an unavoidable and debilitating case of amnesia, in which all the things about life that you thought you knew and all the answers that you had just disappear from your mind, and you'll look at the world and go, I don't understand anything. And here's the worst part you will discover in time that 90% of the stuff that your parents told you was actually right, and if you had listened to it, you could have avoided a heck of a hard time. I promise you. Now, I'm being a little cheeky here, honestly, but here's, here's the thing. I want you to experience this greater life. I want to bless you with the truth, and this is how it happens. It starts with something as simple as obeying your parents because they want that same thing for you. Even Christ obeyed the Father, all right? Even when he didn't understand the plan. You want me to go to earth. You want me to become mortal. You want me to, to die on a cross for all these people who messed? Why? Even then, he obeyed. And because he obeyed, he was blessed, exalted to the highest place to sit at the right hand of God, okay? He liked Christ, Honor Christ by honoring your parents, and I promise you, both your relationship with them and with him will become greater. Parents, something in here for us too. We are told not to be overly harsh, not to embitter our children if they'll become discouraged. Now, specifically, it talks to fathers, because in the Roman world, fathers had this tendency to be incredibly harsh with their children. Maybe things haven't changed so much today, but we both, parents, mom, dad, we need to listen to this. Now, this word, Embitter. It's in this Greek, New Testament written in Greek, if you didn't know. It's translated into English, so like we can get it. But in the Greek language, this word, it talks about this idea of picking at something 
or like poking, irritating, prodding, kind of like sandpaper on your skin a little bit, just kind of rubbing it raw. That's the idea in this word. And I think if we were to apply it today, it talks about the way that we as parents, we can sometimes fixate on the faults or flaws of our children in the ways that they just don't quite measure up. They may be doing a lot of things well, but if we just focus on where they fall short, we will embitter them. And they will feel like they can never measure up or be good enough. There was a, a single mom and a teenage boy. They went to the church that I used to preach at before we came here. Great, great family. Um, and so they, were, they had this great relationship, but as he became an older, he became a teenager, like, there was some contention because he was pushing boundaries a little bit. Still a good kid. But she came to me one morning. She said, I just, I don't know what to do. There's this thing that he's doing. He stays up till dawn playing video games on the weekend. I ask him to go to bed at a reasonable hour. He just won't do it. Like, what do I do? Because they would fight about it and argue about it. And I don't know why she was asking me, because I was 26, I already had the amnesia, I forgot all the answers, but I did the best I could. I said, look, Zach is a good kid. He does great in school. He's respectful to every adult I've ever seen him interact with. He works hard in the summer, all right? He did school in, in school years, in summers he worked. I said, he gets up, even when he stays up till dawn, he gets up and he still comes to church on Sunday. And he falls asleep, but he's here. That's all I can really ask at 17, right? He's trying. I've had nothing but good interactions with your son. He's a good kid. He's not out drinking or partying. You know where he's at. You know what he's doing. You know who he's with. Maybe just let this one slide. And my point was this. Look, Zach, he does so many things well, and he is commanded to obey you. But he's not perfect. That's okay. Sometimes we need to let our kids be imperfect because they're still just kids. Now, there are things that do need to be corrected. There are things that do need to be addressed when there's danger involved. But, but there are also some things we need to just let go and trust that they're going to grow and learn in because we don't want to pick and rub raw and embitter them. You look at Jesus and the example of his disciples, you see something very similar. Here's Jesus with these 12 guys that were with him for three years every single day. They heard everything he taught, and they still didn't get it. Jesus said again and again, this is who I am, this is what I came to do, this is who I am, this is what I came to do. And even after he died, they still didn't really get it. But Jesus never pushed them away, he never embittered them, he never kicked them to the curb, he never became harsh and fierce with them to the point that they just said, forget it, I throw up my hands and I'm leaving. He was patient with them, gracious with them. He allowed them to be imperfect because he trusted that they would grow and would learn. And we can do the same thing with our children, parents. We can be patient. We can be gracious as Christ was patient and gracious. And we can trust that they will learn and they will grow. Because we don't want to embitter them. Are you seeing how this, this reality, how this, this practical application is so available to us? If we just submit ourselves to Christ, as he becomes greater in our lives, there is fruit to be had in the other spheres of our lives, including our relationships. And that really is the New Testament message again and again and again and again. It's Christ. If you want a greater life, pursue Christ. If you want to find a greater freedom to be who God created you to be, pursue Christ. If you want to find a greater understanding of the world around you and what's really happening and unfolding, pursue Christ. If you want to find a greater love than you've ever experienced, pursue Christ. If you want to find greater relationships and richness in your marriage and in your relationship with your kids and the other important relationships of your life, pursue Christ and be transformed by him. It's Jesus again and again and again because that's the way God designed it. 
God created us to be conformed to His image. He calls us to be changed to look like Jesus. This is the plan. Life is greatest when Christ is greatest in our lives. That's the whole series summed up in a simple word. And you're probably like, why didn't you just say that? You could have saved us five weeks. But we had to elaborate. Life is greatest when Christ is greatest in our lives. Let me pray for you.